0: This episode of The Work Ethic is brought to you by WellBolt Bikes. WellBolt Bikes is a social enterprise working to make affordable, reliable transportation available to everybody. They're doing this by gathering bikes that might otherwise go wasted or taking bikes in as donations, old bikes that might be laying around your garage, which by the way, you can donate to this enterprise by dropping them off at any time that they're open. But they gather these bikes, they rebuild them, uh, making them available for sale, refurbished bikes for sale at really affordable prices, great bikes, super accessible. And they do this so they can take the sales revenue and invest it into an earn a bike program so that those with little to no money can also get a bike through a small investment of community service hours, a bit of sweat equity work that they put in to earn their bike. And at the end of this program, they get a bike, lights, lock, helmet, water bottle, really Uh, and a safety training so everything that they need to be commuters to get around town to have access to the rest of the city its opportunities its economy uh, a, a really great program. They also offer a full service repair shop on sliding scale so that it's available and accessible to everybody. They invite everybody, whether you earned a bike or bought a bike, or you're just a neighbor that already has a bike and likes to go riding to ride with them every Tuesday night. There's a group ride at 6:30 that you're all invited to. If you're in Tampa, Florida, their shop is located in university mall, right next to USF in the uptown university area. Go check them out. It's at Well Built Bikes on any social platform or bikeshoptampa.com if you want to find their website. So I'm sitting here today uh, with a friend, Gabriel Morgan, who is a pastor of a couple churches here locally, yep. uh, Lutheran churches, mm-hmm. Faith and St. Paul Lutheran. Correct. Um, and... I guess the way that I know him is through our my work with the well and the Wells partnership with Saint. Paul uh, and now with faith so for years we've worked with them we do um, some of our kinship food distributions and um, uh, sorry Saint. Paul has been working with and walking with us for years now and then we've some folks from faith have jumped in and then recently yeah. uh, we've launched another kinship kind of mobile food pantry, food free market, food distribution that takes place from faith as well. Um, so that's a little bit for those listening of kind of how we know each other. Um, I'm going to let you go ahead and jump in and kind of flesh out your your bio a little bit uh, uh, beyond uh, pastor. Okay, sure. Uh,
1: uh, well, I'm actually a Tampa native. Um, great. People are kind of surprised to learn that. And uh, I guess understandably, when I came back in 2016, uh, I think some of the congregants there thought that the... Uh, seminary or the synod had sent us. Um, But I I actually grew up uh, out in Valrico, uh, which at the time, you know, in the 80s and 90s was a really, really, really small uh, place with not a lot of population.
0: Pretty rural, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Um, In fact, you can, there's, uh, you know, little pieces of cultural archaeology on YouTube from past ages, as you know, VHS... Mm -hmm. Uh, tapes and whatnot and there's a balloon festival uh set in Brandon in the 80s Hmm. uh, slightly after the time i was born that kind of give you a feel of how sparse it was if you could imagine state road 60 as a two-lane road for example Mm -hmm. uh but i i grew up out out there with my grandparents my mother and father separated basically when i was a year old and um the two of them were were very intense and intelligent creative people they they met in writing and poetry circles uh, here in Tampa. And um, my mother was a a linguist and uh, spoke French very, very, very well. Hmm. Uh, So well, in fact, that she could persuade local Parisians the year she was living there that she was a native. Um, And basically, um, the short version of all that is that my mother ended up going up north to Vermont around the time I was about eight years old, and, and she was murdered, uh, she was killed. Jeez, and um, that sort of became like the defining trauma of my childhood, and ended up, you know, as like in, uh, 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 you know, sort of uh, from a psychological standpoint. For you sure, know, people talk about death anxiety and and how um, you know all of us are driven by a death anxiety,
0: but we're Terror not all conscious of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. But I basically have lived my life painfully aware, somewhat aware. Of, of, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, knowing that I'm I'm sort of preoccupied with it and seeing some of the effects of it uh, throughout my life
0: so you're so, eight years old she moved yeah. up there but you were still here right okay yeah.
1: my my grandfather died previously from a um, a diabetic related stroke uh, when I was about three or four so it was just my grandmother and I for the rest of my upbringing and she and I were very close um, and and in fact I would even say that she she worked really hard to to create you know a sort of peaceful home life for me so that I could have an upbringing that I guess my mother didn't have. Yep. My mother and my grandfather used to fight like hell. I mean, just blow up outrageous, like throwing furniture, violence kind of fights. And my grandmother always sort of, there's a saying in our family that, that the diabetes sort of made him irritable. And I, I have seen that to be the case, I guess with some people, but um, I, I, I suspect also um, based on for a number of reasons I won't get into, but probably my mother and my grandfather had some kind of psychological issue going Mm -hmm. on there as well. Um, And my mother just was always a a frustrated and troubled soul, Mm -hmm. I guess, and went through life, uh, I think, really tortured internally in a lot of ways. I, I had the opportunity to read uh, through some of her writings uh, that she produced the mm-hmm. the year I was conceived, 1983, when she was over there in Paris with my dad, and uh, just got some insights into into that. But um, essentially, my my grandmother tried to really do something different mm-hmm. um, with me, and in a sense, I was I was privileged and even spoiled, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I had a, I had the kind of even though there was this like horrific trauma that was like ready to like crack open through the surface at any moment yeah i also had like a really peaceful life and and my grandmother never yelled at me or or raised a hand at me uh on on one occasion i i don't remember what the uh what the argument was at this time but but uh, she gave me a little slap once and i knew i deserved it it was Mm -hmm. just something horrible i had said but she really she really worked to try to create an environment for me that that I could take a different trajectory. Cause she saw something in my mother that didn't get cultivated, I think, mm. and, and did with me. So when I went to university and I was, I had done ROTC in high school, and was, you know, how a lot of kids do bounce around from one dream to another mm-hmm. lacking clarity. And, uh, thought at one point I wanted to be a fighter pilot cause I had, you know, better than usual eyesight <laughs> then, you know, okay. yeah. Right. And then, um, uh, decided to do engineering because i got into like cars and stuff you know when i was in high school um, and uh you know spent a year in mechanical engineering and and was like man this is not for me like i like the science and the physics of it but just like the drudgery of like building bridges because you still have to do like basic yeah you know civil engineering courses and mechanical engineering i'm like i have to get out of this and i just spent a summer one one summer at a barnes and noble and i don't people look at me funny like I'm making this up, I assure you I'm not. I just came across some books in the philosophy section and started reading Plato's dialogues, and it, and it captivated me, and, and I yeah. never looked back. Uh, in fact, I remember the first dialogue I was reading was Plato's Ion, yeah. uh, which is uh, a dialogue where Socrates and Ion are discussing whether the poets have knowledge. Uh, in, in ancient Greek culture, the the poets were often the teachers because they recited the the poetry mm-hmm. of the master. And Socrates is sort of poking holes at it and saying, "Well, you're memorizing and reciting the great the writings of the greats that came before you, but do you have knowledge? You know." Mm-hmm. And, and of course, the rebellious part of me who wanted to like take down every teacher who ever gave me a C or an F, you sure, know, it was like, sure. "Yeah, stick it to him." So, so, and and I was fortunate because. I was a student at USF, and they they had, I think they still have a really good program, but it was, it's it seen a lot of budget cuts since then, but the philosophy and religion program there were just absolutely outstanding the time I was there. And I was able to just read and study everything from, you know, Plato and and Kant and Heidegger to, you know, the um, different traditions uh, uh, in, in religious studies, history of Christianity, Uh, I, I, I studied the Tao Te Ching a lot when I was there at the time. And, um, I had an undergraduate instructor who I recently connected with again, Adele Deshaunt.
0: Oh, I love Deshaunt. So I, just for those listening, I also went to USF. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a very similar experience. I actually went just to interrupt for a minute to kind of get my own story in here. But like, I went to USF, um, and I started as an art major. I've always been an artist. I could draw just about anything. However. Don't let Plato get you down. <laughs> I was bored out of my mind because they'd enter into class and be like, oh, draw a sphere. And I was like, I've been doing this since I was a child. I can't I can't come in here and do this stuff. Like, there's nothing challenging. And, yeah. and it's pretty obvious that art doesn't pay very well. And so mm. if I'm going to do something that's not going to pay very well, maybe I'll find something that at least interests me. And I ended up taking a religious studies course. Mm. And ended up becoming a religious studies major, which yeah. Del Deshaunt was the chair of yep. the department for them. Yep. And anyway, that's enough for now. Go on. You, yeah. You caught up recently no, with Deschant. D- yeah. No,
1: d- Deschamps is is excellent. He was one of my favorite undergraduate instructors. Um, I also love Charles Guillon, who taught existentialism and Brooke Sadler, who was an ethics mm-hmm. professor. Um, and and so I was able to study the the best philosophy and religious studies, but I could also just start reading Luther and have mm-hmm. a context to really explore what that meant. Cause I, I was raised in the Lutheran church and mm-hmm. I was involved in the youth group and had people sometimes giving me a little elbow, like, Hey, you should think about being a pastor, you know mm-hmm. how some churches do. If they see any young person stepping into a leadership role, they're like, Hey, great. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and I could do that with Deshaunt, you know, I could do that with some of the people that I met there and, mm-hmm. and, um, as a um, an officer of the you know undergraduate philosophy organization and all that, we we just we had a great time. It was it was such a good experience. And I didn't really know my much about my mother really at that time. But looking back on it in hindsight, I can see now and I treasure the way in which I've sort of followed in her footsteps mm. in a lot of ways. You know, I'm not a poet like she was, but she was known for for being an intellectual like mm-hmm. that, engaging in philosophy and those kinds of subjects. So anyway, I I thought, you know what, man, I just love this. I love it. You know, my my dad likes it, you know, and my grandmother's supporting me, and and I can't get enough of this, so I'm just going to go all the way with it. And, you know, a lot of undergraduate philosophy students talk about they're all working on their doctorates, and some of them actually do it. Mm -hmm. And and I wanted to be the one that actually made it happen. And uh, and so I was applying to programs. I got waitlisted at the New School for Social Research in New York. And uh, and I got in also at, at Union Seminary for an mm. MA degree, and I was reading a, a just a heap load of Paul Tillich uh, at the mm. end of my undergrad. Um, I'm not as much of a Tillich junkie as I used to be, uh, but well, I'm
0: a big fan it, myself. Oh, yeah. I'm
1: sure, I'm sure. And um, and I just decided, you know, Union's going to give me half tuition, and I know it's not a doctorate, but if you get waitlisted, that means they're not feeling it, you know. And I just I didn't want to. I didn't want to put myself in a position where I'm just hanging around. It's like my 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 wife Erin, her dad has a saying: "Go for the ones that go for you." Mm-hmm. You know, and I just thought, eh, I don't know. I'm not feeling it when I'm talking to like the the folks in the in the office there, and and how the process is going and everything. I, I just I just didn't think it was it was right. So so I. I and, you know, I, I matriculated that fall of 2009 and and was walking the halls that, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich and Dietrich Bonhoeffer were at. And, and I didn't really, I had read some liberation theology prior to going there, but that wasn't the main motivation that I had applied to the school, as it was for many of my colleagues. But I, I discovered a, a really deep appreciation for that tradition yeah. while I was there, and I took James Cone's course, Martin and Malcolm. Which mm. I think is one of the single best courses I could have taken with him. I'm while so I was jealous there. <laughs> I that you got
0: to take a class know. or classes with Cone.
1: I know, and and um, you know something. It just as an aside, I, uh, I actually when I went into that class, I, I kind of was intimidated and thought, man, like I'm just gonna get drug out on the carpet, you know, for whatever sure. bl- racial blind blinders or, that I have in my own theology or whatnot, and and I actually. I, I didn't experience that at all, and in fact, I think uh, all of us found Cone to be an extraordinarily uh, uh, caring and and concernful teacher. That he, mm-hmm. I mean, the love for his students was was quite clear, and he knew that that had a transformative impact on mm-hmm. us as he was teaching. Totally different tone than the than the fiercely angry James Cone in his academic writings and, mm-hmm. and, and articles and presentations. And it wasn't until I l- read his bio that, that came out recently, you know, because he passed away uh, not too long ago, uh, that I, I discovered some kinship for his sense of anger. <laughs>
0: okay, tell um, me about that. Yeah, I like yeah. anger. Yeah, well, well, yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> I know. It's something I have to be careful about as a pastor. It's sort of a no-no for, for pastors. But um, uh, I, I really, I could connect with the fact that he was driven in his academic work by the trauma of black lynching and, mm-hmm. and oppression and the need to make this point connect with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yeah. he just would not tolerate any nonsense that got in the way of that. And I have a similar connection with Luther and the Luther theology of the cross because of the trauma of my mother's death. And there's something um, of a sort of irritation or irritableness in me if I'm having a conversation about it and I feel like someone's being you know um, oh, un'necessarily captious or not getting to the heart of things you know mm-hmm. um, so but um, basically I, I I ended up while I was at Union I, I switched to the MDiv program because uh, I, I didn't feel I had clarity about the next step after mm-hmm. a year, about a year and a half of study and and I had a lot of people there like before saying, I don't know I think you're one of us you know I, th- I think you're a pastor like, no 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 I don't know but I decided, you know, I, I was talking to some folks and said, yeah, there's a lot of folks that do an MDiv and then go on and still do the academic thing. So I thought, why not? So I, I switched to the MDiv, ended up filling, fulfilling the requirements for both degrees, even though I had one, and um, uh, was applying to PhD programs and was admitted to the Lutheran Seminary at Philadelphia uh, mm-hmm. last year there. Because I had made a connection with Timothy Wenger, a really um, incredible Reformation scholar who no longer teaches there, but, um, and I, I just loved it. Even though I had wanted to go to some big name school, you mm-hmm. know, I really felt that I was, I was among my kindred, so to speak. And, and that was the, the sort of final fertile soil, if you will, for me to sort of realize, well, Maybe I really do need to look at this pastoral thing. And then when I took CPE and everybody was like, yeah, and you're doing great. And I, when I went into CPE, I thought this is going to be horrible. It's just death and suffering, and it's going to be constant misery. But I really liked it, actually, mm-hmm. and I was surprised by that. So um, anyway, I'm sure I could say more. I think that's enough. But after I finished the PhD, I came back to Tampa, went into a, um, basically a, um, an accelerated ordination track because of my credentials. And mm-hmm. now I'm a pastor. Now you're a pastor. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, well, okay. So, man, there's even just here um, for, for you know, folks that aren't as familiar with like church construct and what pastor is. And honestly, to be frank, like I think a lot of people in church construct don't understand what pastor yeah. is as a role, right? So it's among gifts of leadership within the body, within the church. Um, it does in our context, kind of, um, at least the church in North America, as far as I've seen, we typically, that is the point person in -hmm. many of the congregations that I'm familiar with. Um, but it is a bit of a gifting, right? So there's a, so, so you reference. well I gotta be careful about my anger when I'm a pastor (laughs) or whatever, which is why I might fall into more of the prophetic (laughs) side of things. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is like, I think what that impulse really is more, uh, kin to. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, um, maybe fleshing out a little bit of, of what that role or vocation even means, Mm -hmm. uh, for those that are listening that maybe aren't in the church or that even are. And then I guess in my mind, it is not obvious that philosophy and theology and academic study leads toward pastoring necessarily, right. right? So just talk to me a little bit about the, the role of a pastor and then the, the preparation for the work that is yeah. all the schooling you did.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to be clear. Academic study really doesn't lead to being a pastor. It's more like... Yeah, because I can get really smart. Right. I can still be a dick. Correct. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, for me, it's more like the Lord was hemming me in. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, but the academic study that I did serves the pastoral ministry now and Mm -hmm. hopefully whatever academic work I might do in the future. Um, I I think a a good way to start is just around the way a chaplain functions in like a hospital setting, for example. Um, Your job really is to tend to the the spiritual emotional needs of individuals through the the day-to-day, you know, struggles and trials of life. And that really is a place where you have to set your own anger and whatever things are going on in in you aside Mm -hmm. Um, in different traditions. There are different ways of defining and understanding what a pastor is. Mm -hmm. So I'll speak from my own tradition in the Lutheran church. We think of the pastoral office more than the pastor. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And the reason is because of our, our emphasis on the primacy of grace. Uh, The, the person who fills the role is always imperfectly equipped. Sure. The question is, what is God doing with that individual at that given point? The, the primary calling of a pastor from that Lutheran perspective is to preach the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to administer the sacraments, and through those two things, uh, attend to care for, the, for those who are in need spiritually in the parish uh, in the ELCA i'm 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 glad to say that we also define the pastoral office as having a calling to do justice so there is a prophetic aspect to it that mm, some ministers mm-hmm. lean into more than than sure. others mm-hmm. um, but the the bottom line is basically that the office of the pastor functions in the person of Christ for others. It's it's not that I am necessarily always Christ-like. In fact, I'm I'm not. And or, one of the big challenges yeah. for me has been learning to set a good example, because when you spend so much time in academia, being rough around the edges is almost a positive. It yeah, you know, yeah, makes yeah. you more it's interesting. not a problem. Yeah. And it's a liability in the pastoral office. Um, but but that's sort of a, a short version. and. Yeah. And when I did CPE, I discovered that my relationship with my grandmother and what I learned from her gave me some like core emotional tools for doing that sort of pastoral care. We talk about active listening, you know, Mm -hmm. for example, in pastoral Mm -hmm. care and um, the capacity to really enter into the space of the other person. Even when your own personal worldview may be at odds with it. And in fact, I'll even say is usually going to be at odds with it. To be able to set that aside and to enter empathetically into what they're going through and, and try to find the connection to the grace of Christ. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's really interesting. I mean, it seems like empathy is really a core tool for the pastoral role, I, I guess in the human interaction portion of that. Right. So it's yeah. like you're, you can administer sacraments, but to really engage with individuals, to hear them, active, listen, put yourself in their shoes, kind of navigate through what they're and, and, and to meet them where they're at dealing with, mm-hmm. you know, whatever their framework is and their worldview is. And then, um, and then how, how does that I'm just curious how that plays out in, in the um, influence and leadership side of things. Right. So, uh, I, and maybe this is, it's an obvious thing why my own mind would go there. Right. Is there are ways in which I am very aware that people need cared for, listened to mm. held hugged, you know, cared for. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially in times of deep emotional need um, existential anguish, you know, there's, yeah. Life is hard and it can get heavy. And the role of a counselor, of a pastor, of a, you know, even a good friend to walk with us through that is important. Yeah. Uh, and often there is a need for, you know, I think it like, well, that word, I mean, I guess historically we take from like shepherd, right? Like a shepherd of sheep Correct. or something. And That's so, right. yep. yeah. And occasionally a sheep, keeps going off astray and needs a little kicked back, you know, back into shape. Right. And so that's the side of pastor. I'm a little more like, yeah, let's, you know, uh, but, but I am, so it's obvious maybe why my own personality would tend toward that, but I'd like to hear you maybe speak to that a little bit, that the, the need for influence or corrective measure in a role that is in some sense defined by grace and empathy, and, you know, how are those things maybe held in tension in your own experience?
1: Uh, I mean, it's a good question, I, and, and it's very challenging, because that corrective role is essential. Um, uh, in, in Lutheranism, we speak of God's Word uh, coming to us in two kind of modes or voices. One is the voice of law, which instructs, corrects, says, get your act together or else, mm-hmm. you know, and the Word of the Gospel is this unconditional word of mercy that just says, "Here's what I've done for you," mm-hmm. and because the followers of Jesus stand under the the shield of grace, as mm-hmm. it were, uh, the pastor is called, I think, to lean harder, to err, as it were, on the side of grace in mm-hmm. moments of uncertainty about what's needed. That does not mean that the corrective isn't isn't needed, and mm-hmm. and in fact. Um, already in a couple of situations in my ministry, I've had to establish some boundaries with a particular congregant who sure. is, you know, acting a fool, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Oh, I do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, it happens. Yeah. That's right. So, um, uh, and different traditions also have different approaches to that. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which is a more conservative uh, Lutheran body, which I was raised in, by the way, um, they have a much more pastor centered approach to that kind of disciplinary measure. The pastor mm-hmm. tells you and you obey. Whereas in the ELCA, it's a little more, um, communitarian. Uh, the pastor brings some disciplinary issue before the council. And then the council deliberates about a, a corrective action, uh, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. So it starts at the pastor's recommendation, but the pastor's not like the lone sheriff. that's good. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah. well, that's probably, I mean, that's right. probably for the best, right? Correct. It, <laughs> that's right.
0: Um, yeah, there's good uh, bound, boundary and precaution in place kind yeah. of with communal involvement and the wisdom of the right. of the collective. Right. Um, well, that was a lot of schooling you went through. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the work, the academic work. You just work as in the academy, in your own development. So from the first time you pick up Plato to mm. kind of graduating and coming back to Tampa, I mean, that... I mean, maybe you had jobs here and there, but I imagine they were to support the work that was your academic development, which was your central vocation or call or work during that time. Yeah. Uh, just talk to me about that a little bit, your, your process there.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I want to I check in about something because I know that the theme mm-hmm. of your podcast mm-hmm. right now is work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds to me like you're, you're framing my academic studies as work. In that sense, right? Is that your intent?
0: (laughs) I mean, sure, it is my intent because of the theme of the show, but then and you can reframe all you want if for you it was just... Well,
1: no, I I actually think it's interesting.
0: Because I imagine that it... Well, even if you engage in it in a fully playful way or if you found it to just be fun, which I actually think a lot of the people I talk to, their work... They have found work that is a lot like play for them because it is, it is what they're obsessed with. It is. And it's actually one of my aims of these conversations in general is to help everybody to find that kind of vocation that calls them, that engages them to something like a calling, something that is fulfilling, something that that you don't feel like you just are in drudgery so you can go live your life, but that you find meaningful work to engage in. And I think meaning is a big part of what makes something feel something like other than work, but doing a PhD, I don't care what you're studying takes hard work.
1: I I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) Right. Yes. And so no matter what your IQ is, I think it's a safe assumption that you put in work. Yes. Okay. So if that's helpful, no,
1: no, it's great. No. And I, I I like it. I just wanted to clarify Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. where we're going. So uh, if I can answer the, the, the question sort of in like a more mundane way and then I wanna, please I'd like to wax philosophically for a moment on play it. and work um, I did work a job actually like regular old job between undergrad and going to Union uh, I worked at a Sylvan Learning Center and did some tutoring off and on and ended up um, helping uh, as a director of education I didn't officially have the role but they didn't have a director of education there at this uh, Center in Riverview And, uh, I basically did a lot of tutoring and parent conferences and, Mm -hmm. and, and updating curriculum and things like that. And I, I really, I learned through that experience that I love teaching basically in any capacity. Obviously I prefer to be Mm -hmm. teaching philosophy and theology, but I find teaching intrinsically satisfying and motivating. So I've, I've known that I had a call to teach for a long time. Um, but otherwise, yes, my work was my study, my research, um, as some some scholars even refer to their work as a craft, and I can see why because yeah. you you chisel at it and chisel at it and leave and come back and improve, and there is a final product. You know, it's not just like you're laboring in endless labor with no sort of tangible result. Right. You know, and this is why I've always liked uh, Hannah Arendt's uh, sort of categories of labor and work and action. Um, I'm not sure if this is something you're familiar with. Or Bring words, it. But yeah. Let's do it. So, so uh, Hannah Arendt, a German philosopher, a contemporary of Heidegger during the war, uh, she, she dif- distinguishes animal labor um, uh, from work and, and action in this sense that labor is just what we all have to carry on doing endlessly to survive. So it's sort of like you have to keep washing your clothes and making food and doing the dishes and all this stuff that like never has a tangible result in the end. But if you don't keep doing it, you're going to like unravel. And it's like not that satisfying, you know, in fact, isn't at all. And it's kind of frustrating when we reflect on having to do all that stuff. Mm-hmm. For some people, that animal labor is way worse than it is for other people.
0: Now, just for clarity, because mm-hmm. uh, I don't know many animals that wash their clothes, um, <laughs> but when I think and you're using the word animal. I'm trying to get at why. Um, yeah. But we do use animals for labor, like an ox would a pole, a Correct. plow, right? So is right. this what we're saying? Like, it's muscle. Right. It, it, it's muscle. Yeah. Right? I'm it's,
1: giving a very sort of like – I'm trying to, like, riff on it in, like, a key that no, no, people f- my generation understand and, you know, yeah, day yeah, yeah, day yeah. experience. But, yeah, no, it, it just means the things you have to do to get by day after day that doesn't have some tangible end result. Okay. Okay. Chores. Uh, yeah, that's right. right. That's right. Um, uh, and in that respect, our our animal labor for like middle class millennials is actually not bad, right? It's it's a, a decent way of living. Uh, whereas for a lot of people in the world, that that day to day labor is almost all consuming. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, then the second category is work, which is um, still has some necessity to it. You know, you like a house, for example, is a product of work. Uh, but you still need it to survive but at least there's some sense of accomplishment some sense of satisfaction fulfillment in it there's a little bit of human dignity in that mm-hmm. right to be able to craft something you know and, and the end product is like ah and somebody's going to live there and that, and that's good you know and and then um finally uh hannah Arendt has a category of action uh, which she says is the true reflection of freedom uh um And she has these categories to serve a number of ends, but one of them is to point out that in modern societies, the way class and economy is structured, most people are so consumed with labor and work that they're almost never able to achieve action in the political historical sense, right? So like, for example, when Bernie Sanders is always saying, well, the reason why, you know, poor people don't vote at levels that other people vote at isn't because they're apathetic. Or disinterested, it's because they're so busy all the time, day after day, doing this and that. Maybe they can't get off work on election day, or they they aren't able to do a mail-in ballot for whatever reason. And Arendt was talking about that sort of phenomenon, something that my uh, my wife spends a lot of time thinking about too, as a uh, labor organizer for the teachers union mm-hmm. uh, here in Hillsborough. So, uh, and I I think of that academic work that I did as work in that sense, right? That you are trying to achieve like a career goal, (laughs) you know, when you do this stuff, it's, it's not out of pure freedom. Although I I can say thankfully that in the doctoral program there, they really did give the students a lot of leeway. I mean, obviously they're going to push back and make you par down your, your projects. But um, yeah, the end result was, you know, just a a tremendous amount of work, you know, and over 200 pages of just chiseling and thousand footnotes and what have you. And it's, and it, and it feels good for it to be finished and also frustrating because no one reads it. (laughs) So which is the other challenge. My heart and soul into this work that
0: is on a dusty library shelf or whatever. Yeah. Right. So now, well, I'll tell you what, I don't know how many people are going to listen to this. Um, and we don't have time for your 200 pages. Yeah, I'm not going to, why don't you share a bit of your work? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh,
1: okay. So I'll, then I'll, I'll yep. talk about play then because it's related good, to it. My good, my, my dissertation was basically on the theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. and the philosophy of Paul Ricoeur, who's uh, a French philosopher who's uh, widely read and respected. Um, of course, Recur passed away uh, over 10 years ago, and, and Bonhoeffer was killed in the war. Um, my, my, th- my thesis, basically the short version, and then shift gears away sure. from all the super nerdy stuff, is basically that Bonhoeffer had looked at a number of philosophical thinkers in his time, particularly Martin Heidegger, uh, who has been a controversial figure, Mm -hmm. uh, primarily because he was for a time involved, actually, in the Nazi party. The Nazis, yeah. yeah. Um, I think primarily out of stupidity, although it could be worse. And um, Bonhoeffer basically said, well, there are problems with these philosophers, all of them, from the perspective of Revelation and Jesus Christ, but we have to make use of them for a number of reasons, And, and he had his sort of criteria for doing that. And I just, have been so impressed with Paul Ricoeur because he takes a lot of this stuff from Heidegger and leaves some of the stuff that people find problematic about it and develops so many other aspects of philosophy. And I thought, well, he's got this narrative theory of ontology, of our being in the world, Mm -hmm. story as something that really um, fundamentally structures our understanding and experience of time and everything that, well, you could do the same thing with Ricoeur that Bonhoeffer did with Heidegger. So that's a short version of the dissertation. There's a German philosopher, though, named Hans-Georg Gadamer, who uh, is considered to be in a sort of similar camp to Recur, uh, in terms of his work on, on hermeneutics and interpretation mm-hmm. and all that. And Heidegger talks about play in a way that I think is really important. Um, because, according to Gadamer, and he gets us from Heidegger, because understanding is not something we simply achieve through academic study, but is really actually already characterizing our day-to-day being in the world, and we try to refine that understanding when things go wrong or when we become conscious of something that needs improvement. That means that learning is not something that only happens through that conscientious process. And and Gadamer earlier in uh, Truth and Method will go on at length about the incredible importance of play mm-hmm. for this very reason. Because play is where we really just carry on according to our own devices. Pardon me there. Good. And, uh, and... We're we're learning. We're achieving. We're doing things that are important there. It's not it's not to be poo pooed or frowned upon, um, and and that that ha- has informed my my efforts to do things like pub theology, for example, at the uh, uh, in our congregations and in the neighborhood there at Southern Brewing, because that's a space where people can kind of like let loose a little bit, try out ideas. that they wouldn't maybe officially say to the pastor that they necessarily believe. Maybe they believe it today or not tomorrow, or maybe they do actually believe it and just want to see how people respond to it. Mm-hmm. But it's a space where people can play with ideas, you know, and you, they don't have to feel like they have to be nailed to or held permanently to some particular perspective. They can just play around with it and, and learn, I think, um, in ways that you can't replicate in a formal context which is not to say formal learning isn't necessary, but just that it has its limits like everything else. So.
0: Okay. So that's really good. Um, I, it's funny as you talk through that, I realized like as you were laying this out, like we set a stage where people feel the freedom to play with ideas. Right. And I guess for myself, I go, yeah, it's really important. And I didn't know until you said that, that I have a, I think I'm personally pretty comfortable with playing with ideas uh, generally. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I need to be just cause I said this or that, right. you know, I need to be pinned down by this. Like I, I am free to change my mind and right. I'm free. I am actively thinking about that. That's why my mouth is moving. That's right. what it sounds like when I think, right. um, and yet you're right. Uh, how, so, so it's something that maybe I don't see the need for as much, but I go, man, that makes a lot of sense that people that, yeah, I wouldn't say this in front of my pastor or like <laughs> right. not everyone has enough of a chip on their shoulder to be like, I don't care what you think about what I think actually. <laughs> right. Um, so for those that, and by the way, I've, I've been bummed that I haven't been able to make a pup theology cause it sounds like a great time and it just timing wise for me hasn't worked out. But for those that are listening, that are in Tampa, why don't you give, since you just mentioned it, give a little plug for, if someone wanted to come join you, sure. may they, when would they, how would they?
1: Yeah. Uh, so occasionally we change locations, but usually we meet the fourth Friday of the month at Southern Brewing and Winemaking on, on Nebraska Avenue uh, at about six thirty, And, and the main conversation wraps up usually about eight and sometimes maybe half the group will stick around for the, uh, the sort of debrief uh, for another hour afterwards. Yeah. But, um, that, and, and, we were doing it more frequently at first, and it, it just became uh, too much, I think, for for all of us, myself included, coming up with topics and all that. Uh, we actually um, uh, would have one this coming Friday here, uh, which I've got to uh, to come up with a topic for. But I just formed a new group for selecting topics, so hopefully we can get a schedule going uh, f- through the uh, the uh, winter. So you typically
0: um, show up and you so you you have a topic selected. There's right. some thing we're going to muse on right. some okay right mm-hmm. right
1: uh and usually i try to select topics that aren't necessarily theological but are things that are either current events or some kind of moral dilemma or something stimulating that Good. i think can connect with theology supposing uh, i or somebody else want to do that yeah right? sure um Obviously, I do. I, I do still feel a pastoral <laughs> calling, even in those settings. But it's not one where I'm trying to make sure everybody it comes to the same conclusion or something. Mm-hmm. It's just that I want f- fertile soil, if you will, something that that we can turn and and grow some stuff in. So. It
0: seems to me that the pastoral role there, if that impulse mm-hmm. uh, there. So this is funny. I realized one day because a friend of mine. So I love to just bat around ideas. And I have some friends I can do that with that. It's like a, let's say an intellectual philosophical cage match, right? Mm -hmm. We just let each other have it. And then when it's done, we're, we're good. Mm. And I took for granted that I can do that with these people. And then I realized one day that another friend of mine feels like we're not friends anymore. Oh, right. Like, like there was some, Relational move that was being made that I was oblivious to because I thought their ideas were stupid. Mm. Like, I was like, Yeah, we're going to argue of a philosophical idea, theological idea, whatever. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, it existed in a bracket. Like, it has nothing to do with me, like, loving you or your family. Like, it's that why is that even relevant? Did,
1: Did this happen to you recently? To an
0: idea. Uh, well it's happened over the years. Uh, yeah. But, but like the particular person, I'd say it was a little over a year ago, maybe two years ago. Um, and I, and I realized like, Oh, interesting. We, and this, you know, I mean, this is the argument for nonviolence in general is like, if, if we embrace nonviolence, then we can really have it out with conflict because we've made it safe for conflict by not threatening to stab each other or whatever. And there, and there is a way in which I take for granted. And, and this could be just being temperamentally as I am. But like, mm-hmm. I'll, I mean, we could take it to the street too, if you want, like that's whatever, <laughs> but I'm happy My to leave it. Boxer. in, the, in the, Yeah. I'm like, I'm good to leave it yeah. just, uh, but to let that be. But I, and, and so I guess the pastoral role for something like a pub, it's like, yeah, we don't all have to come to the same conclusions, mm-hmm. but we do have to, to know what we're doing here. And to go, actually, there is a there there is space for a diversity of opinions and when we come and when we leave, like we all felt like we, we had a good time. This was a constructive yeah. space, even if I think you really, I think your ideas are really dumb or that, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, and
1: I mean, don't get me wrong. Like if someone starts going on, like, well, maybe the Holocaust didn't happen. Like I, I, I push back pretty hard on stuff. Like we that, do that, acknowledge that. facts, right? <laughs> sure. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, however, I mean, that rarely happens. We have a really good group of people there. Um, not all of them obviously are our congregants, um, mm-hmm. by intention. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I know that experience and I've had to learn, about navigating that and it relates back to the pastoral office uh, yeah because so uh just as a, a, a humorous story when i was an undergrad i used to go to the joyce pub which not when it's in the location in Ebor that it's at now in that standalone building but when it was upstairs yeah. The yeah, block yeah, yeah. where, the, where mm-hmm. the lion's den is now and one of the brothers of the owner um ben i think was his name poor guy i I just made him so mad one day because I, I was getting into a debate with him the way you're describing. And most people don't experience debates the way academics do it, where it's like, ah, well, you know, we just fight like hell over something and then it's fine. We're good. Yeah, 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 yeah. And for most people it, it's argument means personal attack and yes, you know, and he threw me out of the bar and, and, you know, cause, <laughs> you know and, uh,
0: he drank too much. Right. No, he, uh, well, philosophizes too much. <laughs> right. And
1: well, and he, in his mind, and I understand this in, in retrospect, um, you know, he, he gave me some free Guinness from time to time, you know, just because yeah. he, like, listening to whatever kind of crazy thing I was coming up with that day. And, uh, you know, and he felt he had a right not to be attacked, and he's right. Sure. <laughs> he did have that right. Um, but in my mind, like you're saying, I'm just an academic philosopher. This is what we do. Why, why are you upset? I'm not, I'm not mad at this you. This isn't I'm just, personal. I'm just you're challenging. Just, you're your, just wrong. <laughs> that's, right. <laughs> that's right. Sure. Um, however, <laughs> nonviolence... As the philosopher Paul Ricoeur rightly argues, is not just about not killing each other. Mm-hmm. There's also such thing as nonviolent communication.
0: Talk to me about that.
1: All right, uh, the, this is a uh, something that you can actually research. There's whole schools of thought about nonviolent communication, and here's some like basic methods that will like help you in your marriage.
0: Good. <laughs> so, I'm taking notes.
1: Right. Uh, so the first is when you're having a. You can do this all the time, but usually we only think to do it when we're having a disagreement. Uh, first, make uh, an observation about what the other person is saying or doing, with as little value judgment as possible. I know that's difficult, maybe even impossible to achieve, but try to get as close as possible. So instead of saying, um, you know, uh, "Golly, you're you just strolling in and late all the time," you know, uh, Pastor Gabriel, to just say, I, "I observe that you're, you know, five minutes past," and and I observe that this happened this past time too, and just want to check in about that, you know, like that kind of thing, for example. Uh, the second is Ooh, that comes
0: off worse to me, but go on. Okay. Per- well, perhaps it might. <laughs> uh, no, no, that's fine. We'll point it. The point we'll, we'll is, the point
1: is uh, yeah. Uh, try to make non-judgmental observations. Yeah.
0: state and right. here's, as a matter of fact, this Correct. happened. Correct.
1: Yep. Then the second is state how it makes you feel, how you feel as a result of that fact. So instead of going on the offensive about that other person saying mm-hmm. when you're late, it makes me feel that you don't care about this thing that we're doing or that it isn't important to you. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, So then you're owning the feeling that you're having, right? Rather than trying to make them responsible for your feeling. Then the third is try to state a need that you have, right? Maybe the need is just very simple. I need you to be on time because we have a very packed schedule for all our meetings. Or maybe the need is I need to know you're supporting this thing that we're working on or that you're fully on board, right? And then um, let's see here, O, F, N, R. And then the final is Request, make an actionable request item that isn't charged or overly heavy handed, but is an actionable item the other person can do to meet the need that you've expressed, okay? Nonviolent communication. I observe, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I made this observation, this is how it, I will tell you. I'm just responding to these. I, I actually think this is a very helpful. So it's you. I heard you use an acronym. So O F N R. Right. So observe, feel, need, request. Correct. Um. The, I love the obs. Observ- the idea of making observation without interpretation, um, without value judgment. I guess the way you said it. But but, it. The reality is. Try to just try not to assume interpretation, right? right? To go, look, I don't know what this means um, right. and w- what this could be.
1: It's actually impossible to escape the circle of interpretation it, from well, the thinkers we were just referencing. It is yes. impossible. That's right. <laughs> but it
0: isn't necessary. Yeah. So, I mean, right. I think, and honestly, I think this is good advice for even something like reading the Bible. Yeah. While well, you sit down and you look at a passage, it's like, look, the best thing you can do is to approach this like Shakespeare, Uh, not Shakespeare, like Sherlock Holmes comes into a crime scene Mm. is like, just look at what's here and leave all your other stuff. You have no, there's no dog in the fight. There's no theological case to be made. Just like, I see that this happened. I see that this happened. I see that this happened and accumulate observations. And then from those move toward interpreting once you kind of made those. Right. And this is just, uh, what inductive reasoning in general, but like, you go okay, I observed that you're, I like this. You're late all the time. <laughs> uh, I observed that you are tardy and that you were last week and that, you know, right. I, that, <laughs> interpretation almost is implied like, but, but uh, okay. The next one is feel. Right. Um, oh, by the way, I'm going to just echo something I just learned. Mm. This is from sales. Mm. So in sales, um, have you heard? Have you ever had any sales training?
1: Very little, uh, for a brief stint. I, I, gosh, I, actually, I'm not even going to get into okay. it. Something I'm not real proud of, but I didn't actually sell any of the product. I, I sort of got out feeling like morally unscathed. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. I did a little bit. Yes, so
0: answer, yeah. So there is a, uh, I just learned this recently and, uh, I think I echoed it on here once before, but feel felt found yeah, is like, right. Right. Uh, I understand that you feel this way. Correct. I have felt that way. Others have felt that way. And <laughs> what we have found is right. what others have found that's is, right. and then you can actually offer some advice, right? That's so right. it's uh, good sales. I would say it's just good advice for being a friend. It's a good template. Maybe it's a good pastoral tool. Yeah. Um, organizers, although,
1: by the way, use this too. They, they call it uh, a firm answer redirect. Yeah. In organizing conversations. So yeah. 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 It's Mm -hmm. sly. So
0: (laughs) the, but I have an issue with the statement makes me feel. And so if you ever say to me, Hey, you're late. And when you're late, it makes me feel my, maybe I don't say this, but if I'm just being forthright, my, the, the, the phrase itself triggers in me, nothing makes you feel. Uh, you feel you have feelings. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, I would want to interpret that like, Hey, you're late. And like, I'm trying to think like, how would I say that? It'd be like, well, I, cause what I, what I want to change what you just said. into is I'm too insecure to, to have another read on this. And I feel like you don't value me or my time because of my own, because of what I'm bringing to this equation. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because of my own insecurities, because of my own things. Um, but I think it's an important move. Like I don't not to discredit this thing it's just to respond to the line makes me feel. Well, if I may, Go, push yeah, please, back a little please, bit, please,
1: um, because you, you're right. And there is a lot of, of uh, debate, I think, about this, too. And, and in general, the purpose of the exercise is to own your feelings rather than putting their responsibility. You
0: make things. me that yeah, the power shifts that way. Right. Right. And I see what you're saying.
1: Yeah. It's just that people commonly speak that way. They when do. Something That's triggers right. Triggers an emotion. So um, that's right. However, having said that, I think there is more of a connection between other people's behavior and our feelings than we might want to admit, or at least so is the claim of family system theory. Uh, Yeah,
0: it does exist. There is correlation. It just—I guess—the question is, should there be?
1: That's fair. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. And I'm sympathetic with family system theory, but obviously, I'm also a philosopher, so I, I like to shake things down a little bit and find the holes in it. But the claim of Family System theory is that our emotional states reflect an emotional equilibrium of relationships and those relationships are acted out through words and behavior. Mm-hmm. So, so that means to some extent there is a causal relationship between my feelings and other people's behavior. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't become conscious of it to gain more responsibility. In fact, that's part of the whole uh, goal of Family System Series to achieve healthy differentiation from other people mm-hmm. uh, so that you're not overly uh, uh, trying to identify with them out of insecurity or being overly defensive and, and aggressive and pulling away from relationship. So
0: this is very interesting. So what you were talking about before with uh, rent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of labor, work, action. Um, well, I didn't respond much to that template. I was thinking, you know, that that I, I was picturing Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. So first, look, I got to get some food. I got to stay safe. I think of my right. friends that live on the streets, and I'm like. Yeah, they, they're like poverty is in some sense an absence of freedom. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of like a true reflection of freedom being that 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 meaningful action kind of vocational work that so you a labor work action in that mm-hmm. in that template. It takes quite a bit of security to ever get to the place where you're able to engage in that way. There's some assumed food safety connections or Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. And I actually think I hear the same thing in what you're saying about the family systems theory is like, if you're in a unhealthy place, if you're, if there is a setup in which you don't have a certain level of just basic Mm -hmm. security, if it is, and I know even from some friends and neighbors that we have in the, in the neighborhood, that's like, no, they're in a very hostile environment. Right. And, It is life and death at every turn. And our friends that live on the streets is like death could be right around the corner at all times. And so, oh, and I haven't slept in three nights, by the way, and I'm malnourished. I haven't eaten well. I'm living on bread and donuts from the, you know, whatever. And so with all these things all stack up and then you start finding how it's breaking down my inter my ability to interpret the behaviors and statements of people around me um, and or to be the bigger man when the time comes for me to be the bigger man, right? right. In, a, in a scenario that I, well, it turns out my blood sugar was low and I cut you, mm-hmm. right? That <laughs>
1: <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, dear.
0: But, but I mean, it could be as simple as that. I mean, I've heard people even advise, like, hey, you're, right. you're getting into it with your spouse. It's like, yo, just make sure you've had a sandwich, right? Like, seriously, you could be just physiologically off. That's right. Um, and I don't know, I just to, to kind of weave those together a little bit, I feel like there is some, like we're saying in both cases, whether meaningful work or just meaningful engagement in, in relationship, there is a necessity to something like differentiate itself and some sense of safety or security at some level. Correct. And I would just argue the more internal that sense is the better. Yep. Right, that it doesn't depend on my environment because right. well, we don't have control over our environment necessarily. What storms may come, what right. troubles may come. All right, I'm gonna I want to go back to this real quick. So you have like you make an observation, you you identify what that seems to mean to you relationally. Right. Mm-hmm. That's this is how I'm feeling about this is making me feel some kind of way. Right. Correct. Whatever. Like that's right. that's right. Even if it's I'm just kind of angry about this. That's right. I it seems to me that you don't have enough respect for me or my time.
1: Right. And also to observe that it takes courage for us to state our feelings directly. we we, that's right. We presume it's easier than it really is in the, in the moment. And that's why it has to be like designated as a step.
0: <laughs> I, I really like this. I hope you don't mind digging in on this because sure, yeah. I, you just saying it takes courage is something I think is really important. And I think you're right. I, you know, so being a pastor, you're kind of into Jesus and stuff. And Jesus, Jesus said something about like, if a man seeks to save his life, he'll lose it. Yeah. And I have, uh, but to finish that for folks that don't know is, but those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And I've often used that line in my own mind relationally. Mm -hmm. And I've said, if you seek to save this relationship, you'll lose it. Meaning, and it's exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the courage to say what needs said, you've lost the relationship already mm-hmm. because you're often not saying what needs said cause you want to protect the relationship. And the, what happens when you don't have the courage to say what needs said is you lose the relationship. Right. Right. And, um, anyway, just to share that cause I think you're right. that It does take a bit of courage. I don't know if that, that triggered a thought or you want to share something on that. Well,
1: I, I just that um uh when when Jesus it's important to to uh I guess highlight um the way in which Jesus's sayings have such multiplicity of application, right, Right. which reflects the the wisdom of it and and why the ancient church uh spoke of him as wisdom and logos incarnate. Yep. Um and and that goes all the way up to the the sort of supreme wisdom of his cross and mm-hmm. the victory that he achieves through the cross, which is the opposite of what we expect. And that, that sort of wisdom saying from Proverbs, those who, those who are lifted up will be brought low and mm-hmm. those who are brought low will be lifted up. Uh, and this sort of like those who try to find their life will lose it is a v- sort of riff on that and you can take it through just almost every aspect of, of life, you mm-hmm. know, and um, So uh, that's just my way of saying I agree. Yeah. And always as a Lutheran theologian, I I know that's my bias. I'm always in the shadow of the cross. And I I think the gospels are always pointing us that way too. Oh, that's good.
0: Uh, On that same passage and the same word courage, uh, one of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, said like, this is not some mystical advice, but it's something like you would find, I think he said like in an Alpine guide, Uh, (laughs) if you want to save your life on the precipice or on, on the, hillside, you must risk it on the precipice. Like you, right. you have to make this leap. And he said, or of a soldier, um, if you want to get out of this battle, you have to fight your way through. Like yeah. you have to risk your life to save it. And there's this line in there. Cause he was so poetic in his writing. He said, so we desire life like water, but we drink death like wine. Yeah. And I, mm. I love, uh, you like Chesterton. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then you state a need. So you're like, look, this is, but I, I'm going to need to ask you to see, but it is also, oh, oh, it is yep.
1: need and request are separate. I don't mean to be pedantic, but, uh, no, thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
0: So I'm going to state a need. Right. And then I'm going to make a request. Mm-hmm. If we're going to work together, I need you to be here when you say you're going to be here and I'm going to re- Oh yeah, um, I. If, this is very difficult. Yes. This is very difficult right. because. Yes. Because I, that is a request. So wait a minute.
1: It takes time to reflect on what I we need, need. What is that's it right. I need? <laughs> that's right. I
0: need. Oh, that's this is very interesting. Yeah, because it it immediately translates to a request. I have a need. Right. Uh, I need to feel respected here. Right. Um, I need to know you're in this with me. Right. I'm going to uh, request you to yeah. make that known to me in some way. Yeah my preference would be by showing up when you say you'll be here. <laughs> but, but again, it,
1: this is the, because the, the, I think that one of the claims of nonviolent communication is that violence stems from, from violent relationships. Mm. And that sort of emotional violence stems from the fact that we don't have clarity about what's going on within ourselves. That's good. Right. Um, it's also relates to your point about reading the scripture um, and why the practice of meditation is really so essential for studying the Bible. And it's unfortunate that the Protestant side of things has kind of lost track of that, but it seems like we're reclaiming it now in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, But um, a lot of emotional violence is dispelled when we're able to achieve clarity about what we actually need and then can state that to the other person so they can respond in freedom. So,
0: yeah, I I, 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 it's funny. I'm having a hard time like reenacting it, and that that causes some concern because I go, oh, then how does this play out in the day to day in the actual uh, in actual living, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it might be one thing to be like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, trying to flesh this out. Say, okay, so you state a need, and then there's a request, and I guess in the request is what I'm what I'm wondering is like it's saying like. Hey, it, I'm asking you to do this, but the request is open-ended is to, you could just, you could say no, right? Like that, which then just informs the next steps. Like, okay, cool. Right. But that helps me know that I have a need that you can't meet and therefore we need to change Correct. the... Makeup of our relational agreement, correct, and right? that brings us back to family systems Good. theory, which is
1: called role renegotiation.
0: Role renegotiation, correct, okay.
1: yeah, because because the the conflict in that case ensued from a role confusion, yeah, uh, where some unspoken need was trying to be fulfilled or expected to be fulfilled unwittingly by this other person.
0: Which, so this language is new to me, but the that reality is not, and yeah. I I guess I'm more familiar with that wisdom through the 12 step tradition, which yeah. would, you know, they, they have all these mantras they echo, but would say like expectations are premeditated resentment. Correct. So it's <laughs> <That's> like <right. laughs> you, you expect me to do something for you that I never agreed to. Right. Um, and I realize p- people in my life that I expect certain things of that they never opted into. Yep. And then I'm here, I am getting angry for something that wasn't made explicit. Which goes back to the need to make your feelings and needs known, and the courage it takes to do that.
1: So I'm gonna really wax theological. Good, for I a love moment, this. If I may. I'm having a good time. One of the one of the most um, powerful insights that I took from studying Dieter Bonhoeffer, and I and it's taken my relationship with uh, um, Russell Meyer at St. Paul to, yep. to see some similarities with the uh, uh, French thinker Rene Girard. Mm. But it's basically this idea that that physical violence really stems from us uh, s- our our sort of chronic almost addictive state of perpetual self-justification mm. uh and you can run this through the biblical narrative and through experience mm-hmm. uh from the sense of adam and eve gaining the knowledge of good and evil in the narrative mm-hmm. symbolism mm-hmm. of genesis one to then the first sin cain killing abel uh, through to human relationships where we have a connection between actual physical violence and violent emotional relations, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the sense that I'm trying to achieve some goal that I'm on and I'm not stating my expectations of you and therefore I'm really using you and other people around me as a means to my ends. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we have this way of justifying the ends we're trying to achieve, <laughs> you know sure, in our own minds sure sure in the sense of the end justifies the means right. right and this sort of goes unstated in in our life and i think it's a lot more widespread than just the, the few people who find their way through through uh, you know a rehabilitation program from addiction or something this is part of why i liked how uh, tim wanger the reformation scholar I mentioned before Said, you know, Luther's view of sin really is that it's like we are all addicts in a spiritual sense. Yep. You know. And yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's perfect to start scratching at the surface of our motives and and how we're carrying about in day to day life, uh, that that the word of forgiveness of sins, even though it seems so innocuous <laughs> and like what's being achieved by this, yeah. it actually cuts right to the heart of our constant efforts at self justification and 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 and. Uh, uh, cools the flame, so to speak, that, that generates violence. So,
0: you know, it's interesting. Um, man, you know, you said, um, well, the idea that sin and addiction are kind of the same thing or is, I mean, I don't want to. Analogous. Yeah. Analogous. analogous okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I actually think that's spot on. And to, to why I would interpret that and say, I actually think it this is the same because yeah. it is something like captivity Right. Um, and and ultimately that there is a the gospel is something like a liberation, yeah. or a, an offer of freedom. Right. And and the and what's interesting about that to me in this conversation is that when we were talking about action, rents action as a true reflection of freedom, there is some way that action is only made possible through something like a psychic, spiritual liberation right. in, in that sense. Right. There is. Uh, and I, and I just think, man, that's so interesting to me. And maybe even why this conversation is so important around vocation and work. Mm. And and really this for me grew out of like how many people I know that go, man, I hate work. Mm. And I'm like, that's so not good. Yeah, like that's, that's just right. a really, that's, right. that's bad. That's, I know. I know. And, and like, right. I don't want to go to work and yeah. I'm like, well, you were created to work and work's not a place you go. It's something you were created called into being to do. You get to work. You have hmm. something to do, to offer, to but create.
1: Does that take into account, though, you know, like just the, the way we've created these sorts of jobs that are just like hell holes? Well, right. No, <laughs> like, no, 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 I no, mean, no. And that's yeah. and then
0: some through some of these conversations have yeah. come like this is soul sucking work. And, yeah. and I mean, you know, even I mean, honestly, I think the most blasphemous thing I've ever seen is the sign that hung over the concentration camps, I can't say Mm. in German, but that work will set you free Mm. to a people that are in absolute captivity, doing absolute meaningless work that just carry this back and forth all day long to your own detriment. There is nothing being produced. You talk about like the, the, the labor. Yes. There's just endless toil. Right. Uh, to no end other than your own demise and destruction under the banner of something that I think is actually true like as a statement work and in this sense i think like f- work will set you free in some sense i think like freedom you have free this would be i guess under the under the lens of like rent's template that you mm. laid out is action like that there is like f- work is an expression of freedom it is a you know what is the the, theolo- the theological first days is there was a creator who said you know what i'm going to create and I'm going to call something into being and I'm like, this is the this is the image that we're created in. Right.
1: Right. But I think um, the, the, the challenge here is that uh, when you're talking about work and action, I think Arendt would identify some of those things as actually labor. Is laboring and okay. you can see this in like the the categories of genesis right so you can see ways in which human beings are created for work and for action mm-hmm. and then the curse of the fall is labor right you would toil under the storm. now it comes with thorns that, and that's, thistles that's right. it. yeah yeah yeah, right, yeah for right. sure and something that i find really remarkable that i i had th- what's triggered in my mind when you first mentioned yep. doing this podcast uh is that bonhoeffer this is both interesting and heartbreaking because Bonhoeffer's manuscript Ethics was unfinished, yeah. uh, as you know. Uh, and in one of the sections of Ethics he riffs on this Lutheran theology of the three estates um, of uh, church, government, and family as being orders of preservation of life uh, for the sake of the gospel. And, it, and this is something that I think the the ELCA does a good job of is emphasizing how our physical needs are met as a way of preparing the way for the spiritual message of the gospel of forgiveness of sins and mm-hmm. how those two things work hand-in-hand. Hand. Mm-hmm. But Bonhoeffer said, you know what, in modern societies, those three estates, it's not enough, church, family, and government. We also have work. Mm-hmm. We also have labor, right? Mm-hmm. And he meant labor in the sense of the working class. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I may be so bold. Sure. Uh, that, that in other words, the, that theology of estates and of the two sides of God's kingdom had to take into account the dynamics of class in modern capitalism uh, in the way in which so much work has precisely been dehumanized, Mm -hmm. right. And turned into animal labor. That's right. And, and that I think is one of the ethical crises that has to be addressed intellectually and pastorally. Yep. Right. For, for people because so many people find themselves like, I remember the first job I worked, it was like at a KFC, you know, for $7 an hour and just like, cooking chicken and washing Your, dishes. Wait, 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 back up, back up, yeah. back up, back up. That was like when I was in high school. I mean, KFC
0: was... paid you $7 an hour. How old are you?
1: Oh, uh, I was born in 1984, so
0: okay. Because I was like, man, we were working for 4.25. I was like, when was your first job? Okay, well, so I do <laughs> think. I mean, I know
1: I'm younger than you, but but I do think the the minimum wage went up a few times, like right in between. Right the then. We
0: were okay, working. okay. Yeah. I was like, that's a good wage, it gives. Well, and it
1: was actually slightly over the minimum wage, which I think was like six and change or something yeah, yeah, at yeah, the yeah. time. So, um, but yeah, and geez, when would that have been? Uh, it must have been in 2001, I want to say. Okay. Yeah, so um. I was a junior in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, just like washing chicken or uh, cooking chicken and washing dishes <laughs> and wondering why the dishwasher is also cooking chicken because yeah. of, like, the contamination issues there. And I'd i, used, I always tell my friends, you know, it's like, man, you, if you want to, like, kick the fast food habit, just work at one. You know' Because, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you will never be able to go back. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sure, like, sure. This is horrible. Um, and it's just awful work. Like, it's just awful. And, like... I remember like I, I cut my thumb with a knife once. I can't even remember what the issue was, but, and just the moment that that happened and like, you know, the blood going everywhere. And of course I had to go home and whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, dish water there had to be like drained and and, like, and I just had this moment where I'm like, what if I had a worse injury? Like would all that I'm doing right now be worth that? You know, and just like the horrible, like just Mm. feeling of like meaninglessness, you know, so going back to Paul Tillich, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't as modern people, even though it's hiding under the surface, we're all sort of wondering about how God feels about us, even though we pretend like we don't. I I suppose some people genuinely really don't care. And I'm okay with that. I wouldn't push it. But I think a lot of us. Yeah. We carry on like we don't think about death and sin, but it actually drives our actions in a number of ways. But we experience it Fundamentally, consciously, yeah. yeah. And but we experience it consciously as like emptiness and meaninglessness, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I was feeling that in that moment. I'm like, this is like and I think that's the first time like I would didn't have the tools to recognize it at the time, but I think that's the first moment where I had like some class consciousness, you know, mm. so I'm like, What the hell is like why is it like most of us have to do this kind of work, you know? now I, I realize that like franchise managers are like a part of the of the you know the sl- <laughs> you know the um, bonded labor in this case in a number of ways and that's why some franchise owners have joined the fight for 15 mm-hmm. uh, movement in some states but it's just like of course people hate work we've made work horrible yes yeah, like, so <laughs> like, well, <laughs> like,
0: yeah this is this is this is part of what's fascinating to me if I can like lay this out so I think you know so now, we think I'm going to work so I can go live because we've associated it with income historically. And I'm talking like little house on the Prairie way back. I mean, I guess the Amish are a good example now, but it's like where there was an, they weren't talking about work life balance because it was integrated. Mm -hmm. You worked and educated yourself and were with your family, you know, picture like a family farm or something like that, which now to me sounds quite, Romantic and uh, like almost like I long for that kind of a thing where but with the move toward industrialization um, and, and of course, this is alongside the rise of capitalism and we start divide you break out kind of capital and labor and we start going, hey, look, I want to move into the city because there's access to this work. Uh, looks like, and, and, and for everybody kind of quality of life starts going up or like I can get a radio this is affordable, you know, They and, and this seems like a really good deal. And, and I, and I don't think it was all bad. It's just like over time with the exploitation of labor, seeing what we can pull out of this um, you, you, we find our way into something like operating like machines where our Correct. work becomes soulless. We lose right. something like meaning and we, and, and it makes sense how you get to a place where you're like. I hate work, yep. and I want to leave work so I can go live my life. And I only work so that I can live. And but then someone with that same mindset would still like leave work and go paint a painting, or compose a song, or work right. in their garden, or work on a craft. Maybe they're a potter or whatever. You know, I, I'm, I'm leaning toward artistic expressions yeah. here. Yeah, but right, right. but to go passionately create something in their time off from work, which in some sense I would be like, that is work. And I, and part of my own prayer around these conversations is that we can reclaim some of the meaning and purpose in, in the gift of work and to recognize like we've lost our way a little bit. And the word has lost some meaning. Um, and maybe work has lost some meaning, right? Right. And there's a, there's a need to move toward a redemption of it. Um, and by the way, I, I could be wrong about this, but with the advancing of technology, um, I mean, God, there's, I mean, okay, I'll just tell you this. So I was driving down the road the other day, and it was traffic on 275, and we were barely moving. So I looked down at my phone, and I'm not going to act like I never look at my phone while I'm driving, but I shouldn't be. And I look down at my phone, and I go, look at what I'm doing. I'm looking at my phone, and I'm in the car. Now, I'm in traffic, and nothing's moving, mm-hmm. but this is still stupid and should be frowned upon. Yes. And, and then I, I go, well, look, look around you. And I look at the car next to me and they're on their phone. And I look at the car next to me yeah. and they're on their phone. And immediately I had like an overwhelming conviction. I, they cannot automate driving fast enough. It's yes. already good enough Correct. and it's already better than we are. Correct. And it should be illegal. <laughs> it should be illegal for us to drive. And if I had power and yeah. say right now, yeah. I would ban human drivers well, immediately.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I totally agree with that. I think you could apply that principle to a number of things in, in human life right now. So, so especially the, when you start reflecting on the climate crisis, I mean, there's hundreds of things we do today that should be illegal.
0: So on the, and, and the reason I, I, I agree. And the reason I bring that up though, isn't so much for saying anything about legislation or rules as much as to say we are replaceable. And, and, and like, we're going to be like, like, we already don't have as many cashiers. We will not have drivers, which is the largest workforce in our country. Like that's the largest number of jobs. And it is over. Like, it's just a matter of time. Like Mm -hmm. if your kid is wanting to go to be a trucker, you should really discourage them from pursuing that vocation. Right. Right. And so, so here's where I go, okay, it's, this is a bit inevitable, especially in a lot of these careers. And then maybe even in middle management, maybe in certain decision-making, God, even in the financial world, like with the development of AI and the places we're going and the absence of some of the emotional conundrums. it's like
1: can't even track what goes on with those sophisticated algorithms on Wall Street. Can't be done. Billions of calculations happening per second. It has to, or
0: even discovery in the courtrooms is like, computers are better at this already. And they're just going to continue to take over jobs, and and I, I, and for me, I actually think this is quite, this is potentially really good news. Although for a lot of people, it is received as really bad news, right? Um, because we depend on jobs for income, and we have an economy that's set up the way that it is. And there are going to be some serious problems for us to figure out these arrangements for right. operating as a country, government, church, family, kind of all of those ideas, like where labor fits in any of this. But for me, I go, we're going to have to find meaningful work to do because you need it. Like you need bread, right? Like it's not, it's not, right. it's not a matter of like you work so you can get some bread, mm-hmm. but like you actually need something meaningful to engage in because you're, because you're a human being.
1: Well, right. I mean, wor- work in that sense is inherently creative. It's yeah. part of what it means to be made in God's image. But I think you also have to f- face, as I think the Church has done in a number of, of ways, um, on the Catholic side with Rerum Novarum and the Catholic oh, yeah. Workers Movement, to yeah. Protestant theologians like Bart and Tillich and Martin Luther King Jr., who recognize the inherent moral compromises and if not corruption of of modern capitalism. That's right. And while they they as christians maintain a nonviolent approach to these kinds of questions and don't advocate for violent revolutions at the same time they're basically saying we we need a new economic structure and we we cannot we we cannot tell working people that these technological advances are good for them. If, if they know for good reason that they will not see the benefits of it. Right. If it's the owners who will see the benefit of it. And there was a long time that I really resisted this analysis because I, I felt like, well, our, our purpose as Christian theologians is just to focus on moral questions and to not get too ideological. And I do think things can get too ideological. I'm sure. not dismissing that. But I do think there's a point where when you take everything as a whole, you have to, you have to admit uh, in honesty that there is a reality of class conflict here. Mm-hmm. And the question is how to address it effectively. Um, and one thing that is interesting to me is even though we have incredible political polarization right now, um, as, as bad as it's been since the civil war, by some counts, one little tiny Island of agreement we still have left is that basically everyone wants to get the money out of politics. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause it's like, how do you, achieve like effective route to reform and change in the yep. system that's designed to redress issues. Well,
0: People have made a career out of this, right? right yeah.
1: Right. So, you know, I, I sometimes preach on, you know, uh, m- mass incarceration or climate change or what have you, but I'm, I'm more willing to lean hard on the issue of corruption and politics if I know that I have some congregants who just are not going to receive that other message. Mm-hmm. I know they'll at least engage me on that.
0: So, Um, I'm interested in something you said earlier, which may not seem like it totally follows what we're saying Mm -hmm. right now, but you were, so I'm, I'm very intrigued by the, by the idea of violence, uh, what in my mind, like working its way out of the physical Mm -hmm. into like use words like emotional and, um, it's, it, one, it makes me nervous because, um, I, I have seen examples of things being called violent mm. that are not violent, mm-hmm. that are just harsh or mm-hmm. right. It's like, right. well, who gets to put that on something? Right. However, I also recognize the role of something like abuse mm-hmm. in like, I mean, you could just take like watching a child with their parents and go, this child is being belittled and like violated right right, by someone in power over them who they should be able to trust who should guide them well and so it makes sense to me to go there is an appropriate use of this term Uh, but something you said that stood out to me was the idea and uh, uh, you, you were using like when we have our eyes on some end and and we end up using people around us in our life toward those ends. Mm -hmm. And of course on the topic of nonviolence, one of the things that jumped out as you were saying that was, I remember Gandhi saying, you know, the, the, the ends are contained within the means, like the means are the ends. Like this is, and, and this is one, of I, I think the best argument against violent revolution is violence becomes the way right. so like right. and which yeah. is why they always end in tyrannical leadership because you you were possessed by violence before you took Correct. the power away That's right. and it's like yeah that while your end may have been righteous your path was not mm-hmm. and you will end up some you will end up a monster.
1: And I completely agree with that, but you'd be
0: surprised
1: like how hard the pushback will be from some, from some seconds about that. No, no, I I wouldn't Uh, be that surprised because I've had those conversations actually. Uh, Yeah, I shouldn't say Uh, that.
0: However, I wanted to know, I wanted you to dig in a little bit because I want to be self aware in my own ends uh, and, and like, I am thinking really hard about. You know, my own goals with my own work with the well and Wubble bikes, because honestly, I would say my own work is trying to bring folks into dialogue that often are not in relationship because I fundamentally believe. So I think that poverty is the is the absence of freedom, human freedom. Mm -hmm. So you are created to be free and in every way you're not free. You're poor. Right. even if that's an addiction, right. I don't care how much money is in your pocket. Right. right. That's very similar to our rent. Yeah. And then, and then I would say, and I think that's the fruit of relationships that don't work like they should. So this is like, you go back to the theological, the fall relationships break and we're broke relationship with ourselves and with God and with each other. Yeah. And that manifests itself in something like poverty or even our broken relationship with our work. Yeah. Um, And so I want to help build bridges, um, not in the sense of the engineering classes, but in the sense of like, between these communities that aren't in dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I believe in relationship as a way to interact and move forward. But I also wonder about, you know, I'm driven and there's a lot of times that I've pushed towards something and said, you know, and and I leave it up to you. You're an adult. You can bounce. Like you, you don't, you don't have to come along for this ride or whatever, Mm -hmm. but I also can recognize ways that I've, expected others to show up or ask too much or, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and kind of leaned on their own being an adult as a way to be like, well, you could have said no. Um, even though maybe a more pastoral mind would have said, yeah, but you had a powerful ask Mm -hmm. or whatever that was. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and I'm, I want to be cautious so while I'm nervous about words like violence in this, I also go, no, I'm gonna, I want to welcome that in as a, as a potential threat and say, I actually want to be cautious in my own proceeding forward with my own goals and building well-built bikes and what we're going to do next. and kind of everything we're aiming at to see our city made whole, because I believe that it has to be done holistically. It has to be done well, or the end is gone in the, in the steps you're taking, right? So I don't know if if this is all making sense or if you can speak to me toward like way things to look out for in my own advancement of my own prayer, my own enacting of the future that I dream of, my own hopes, mm. um, in, in my interaction with the people that I call my community and my friends and those I walk alongside, because I don't want to violate their freedom. I want to invite them into the act the dance with me. And I'm yeah, is that yeah. enough of it? Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I, I mean, if I may, just right off the bat, I, yeah. Jesus himself could be quite harsh, let let alone some of the prophets. Yeah. Um, so you know, when we're talking about nonviolent communication, it, it's not, it doesn't just mean all roses and teddy bears.
0: All the Good, because I'd be out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: However, the, I think Jesus' harshness, even in the most extreme scenarios, and. You know, maybe some of your listeners who don't share my Christology, sure, <laughs> uh, seeing Jesus to be God from God and light from light. I I think that it always is very calculated and Jesus harnesses his own human emotion to really achieve an intended result. Yeah. Right? That it's not just reactionary, you know. Um, and even if sometimes the the like the rich man who went away dejected, even though there was an invitation there and he couldn't meet that, selling all that he had. Um, I think it it still put the pointed thing to him that he needed in that in that moment. And we don't know what happened to him afterwards. You know, uh, even though there there are um, you know not to get waylaid on a tangent, but you know there are passages about a final judgment and also passages that suggest that God desires all all people to be mm-hmm. to be reconciled. And I, and I sort of recognize and have a healthy respect for the word of judgment mm-hmm. and also the hope that even sure. that rich man who went away rejected can be reached. So it's not that I think there's no place for harshness. It's just when you – and I think you do a pretty good job of articulating you know, where you're at about things. I think to use the family systems theory categories, you're more at risk, I think, of like disconnecting with someone from like lack of <laughs> agreement than like just being overly identified. And cause like in the extremes of a uh, system theory, we tend to be one of two extremes. Either we're, we're overly identifying with other people and go along to get along. No, not me. Right. Exactly. Right. So I'm on the other side. What is that? Right. So then that means what, you know, uh, and I, I tend to be like this in some situations too. On the other side, it's, Oh, well, if you don't see it my way, then see you later. Have a good life, you know? Yeah. Disengaging when there's disagreement. Uh, whereas I think healthy differentiation means you stay clearly where you're at, even if it means experiencing some pain of being at odds with someone else, but also stay in the relationship uh, and give them an opportunity yeah. to see where it goes. Well,
0: so, so I this is funny because this is what I was talking about before in kind mm-hmm. of the theological debate with people yeah. where I, I am temperamentally disagreeable and I enjoy <laughs> fighting. Yeah. Like let's argue about this. Right. And I'm like, man, wasn't that fun. (laughs) Right. Right? But I've realized over time, like we're not all made that way. Not everybody wants to get locked in a cage and you know, to have it out, have a blood match or whatever. And so, and so there's times that, yeah, I, I think you're right. I am more on the side. So I am disagreeable, which is what that template sounds like to me. And I'm more on the side of being like, uh, yeah, I don't, you don't need to agree with me. Um, then it would come into questions of, Oh, depends on the enterprise, mm-hmm. right? Like you, either cause it, it could be, we'll stay out of the way mm-hmm. or, or we, we are going to figure this out. So we have to fight this out because some decision has to be made, uh, because both those come into the realm of power mm-hmm. and conflict, which I'm happy to do. Right. Um, But I am okay with like, because I understand personally relationships in their best to me, a relationship is best when we're shoulder to shoulder going the same way. And this is because I understand them vocationally. I'm like, we're on mission together. We are going somewhere together. We are aiming at something together. And our relationship is such that it is defined by the journey that we're on together. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I'm happy, you know, not happy about it, but if you're like, yeah, I'm gonna go another way. I'm like, cool, <laughs> right. that's cool. You can do that. Right? right. Um, so is that what you're saying? Like that? Well, cause, cause I I'm think, not one yeah. to say, all right, get out of here, but I'm also fine if you do.
1: And I, I want to be clear. I really can't advise you strictly speaking, no, that's, in fine. Terms that's of fine. Your, you know, sure. But you know, if you're, yeah. if you're asking and trying to respond to the, the challenge and the, and the fruitful yep, I conversation we're <laughs> happening. Uh, we're having I think uh, it's more like can you articulate where you're at and where you're headed and then but stated in such a way that you still leave that other person an opportunity to engage in another way or to stay in relationship with them even if they might not necessarily be laboring toward the same goals as you because mm-hmm. I can really I, I I know what that is and I so for example I'm in in Luther Lutheran talk mm-hmm. um, we we and this has been a, a you know a debate that goes back to the very beginnings of Lutheranism. You had you had Nicholas von uh, uh, Amsdorf, who was Luther's close friend. They mm-hmm. used to go to the pub all the time and drink beer together. And then you had Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's professional colleague, but they weren't necessarily friends. And there was always a feeling of like Melanchthon didn't really fully get it right, you know, because mm-hmm. he didn't know Luther the way Amsdorf knew Luther. And Amsdorf was the true Lutheran, and Melanchton was the squishy, squishy, you know. And and um, and I within. Lutheran talk I kind of identify as a confessional Lutheran. I really love the book of concord and the, those historical uh, confessions of our of our faith. But I'm challenged then to still receive criticism and to stay in relationship with people who don't see For those sure. documents the same way I do. And it gets really challenging when I'm interacting with another minister because I feel like it's like, well, if you're not going to get on the right page about it then like what hope do we have, you know? Mm-hmm. But to like realize all right, now there's a difference between God's plan and my role in it, you yep. know, versus what I'm trying to achieve. Yep. And you, I think you and I have this in common, that we have very s- clearly defined convictions and goals in yep. a number of ways and get irritable when people are like, you know, not going to get honest about what is going on here, you mm-hmm. know? And I think we have to allow some people the space, the grace, even sure. if I may, sure. to be in an ambiguous space with us. And, and to discover uh, on their own connections that they might find with us. In fact, connections that they might not have found if they felt that it was so heavily presented that they felt they had no choice but to disengage. Yeah, this is a
0: really interesting, I I hope this is an okay conversation for you and for those Mm -hmm. listening. But for me, this is really fascinating because I actually, as I think about this, I'm like, I. I'm quite happy with ambiguous. Mm. I kind of prefer gray. Mm. And I actually think the proper, this is like a theological philosophical statement. I'm mm. like, I think the healthiest place to be is agnostic. Mm. Like in the end, you don't know. Mm. Right. So, so whatever you think about God or no God or it's like, you don't know, you, you don't, you don't have knowledge in any real tangible way. And so agnostic is just sober to me. It's Mm -hmm. honest. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I like about that, and this even helps me out, let's say politically. Well, one, I'm kind of like resolutely like I am doing some, I'm doing what I am doing rather than engaging in like a, the political landscape. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, there's tons of overlap, but I go, I think both sides of this argument are crazy people. And (laughs) so I'm going to just try to be over here, fleshing out my own, whatever. Right. But there is a bit of agnosticism because I'm like, both sides have something awesome and valuable to offer. Mm -hmm. And both sides have some really bad ideas Mm -hmm. in the two party landscape or whatever. But then, but even in theological, like the idea of like, you got to get this right or whatever. I don't have, let's say a major dog in the fight. And I'm quite happy for people to be wherever they are. That being said, that doesn't, always play out in the pragmatic work so like you know the fleshing out of a value let's say or seeing eye to eye on serving the people that we're working with where that's where it's like I really do have let's say strong feelings because it's on behalf of the people that we're serving or loving and walking alongside and I and I let's say I throw all of my weight into that um that's just an interesting distinction for me to flesh out because I'm like, yeah, I don't actually have like a party line idea in my head. And even in our community, you could probably notice if you talk to a lot of folks in the well, you'll go, Oh, there's a bunch, there's believers in here. There's people that aren't, there's sure. people that are from this background and that yeah. background. There's a quite a bit of diversity there. Right. Well, uh, but there's some agreement on mm-hmm. works of mercy or compassion or right. something like that.
1: Have, have you seen the show? The good place
0: no. On Netflix, yeah. Uh-uh. Oh my gosh. You should it look is it up. So, so okay. good. Yeah. Right. It's
1: one of the few shows that really effectively uh, conveys in a, just a humorous, fun way some really like heavy philosophical questions about morality and really? what it means to live the good life. Yeah. And I think that show sh- um, demonstrates so effectively how um, all of us really, our actions and our statements imply beliefs and oh, fundamental yeah. convictions in a number of ways. And this is something that is, forgive me if I'm being the grouchy old, you know, orthodox Bring Lutheran it. here, but I, when I look at people's behavior and statements and actions, I say, all of you have an orthodoxy. The sure. question is whether you clearly know what your orthodoxy is or not, because there is something that you're willing to fight it out over that, is, right. like, that is like end-all be-all, and that is your confession, that's your statement of faith.
0: Oh, I agree 100%. (laughs) No, actually, it's funny. I I feel like I agree 100%. And I think this is relevant to everything we're saying. We've talked about on this show and others throughout about the the work ethic. But like your your actions are your statements. Like this Mm -hmm. is what you believe is what you're doing, right? And what I hear you saying, it's like you're, you're fleshing that out. The question mark is if other people have to have that same belief.
1: Right, and I think what I'm trying to raise from family systems is that when we have healthy differentiation, mm-hmm. we can stay in common labor and relationship mm. with each other, even when we don't have a common sure. orthodoxy or even a common orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Um, and and it's to to achieve the maturity of staying in relationship. I mean, this really applies to interfaith dialogue too, because Good. and this is something that where I like I get really grumpy. <laughs> Is like I think it's equally childish to say, "Oh well, all the other religions are bad, and they're all going to hell, and they're all yeah." It's very wrong stupid here. to say that, yeah. But it's, if I may, <laughs> okay. also very stupid to say, "Oh well, it's all the same, and we're all trying to get to the same." They're end. clearly
0: not the same. Yeah, it's so very, obvious that they're not the same. But
1: I have to tell you, the majority of people, when the question's put to them, and yeah, this yeah, even yeah, includes they're, a lot of scholars. Out. It's a cop out. It's one of the two options is basically where they end up, and yeah. that reflects unhealthy differentiation brought into the context of scholarship. You see what I'm saying? No, I
0: agree 100% because it's like some ideas are better than other ideas Yeah, and you could just (laughs) play them out and see how like it's, yeah, they're, they're not all created equal. Right. Right. Um, and, and I do actually think that pragmatism is a decent lens for determining Mm -hmm. those. Like, well, Mm -hmm. this idea led us to hell. (laughs) <laughs> right, that's right right. so that's it's right. not a good idea that's right. Should, that's right we should come up with another idea
1: yeah and and actually this is uh if i may respond to a yes. comment you made before i don't know if it, we've no, that's probably fine. lost that's all fine. our I'm listeners good. at this I'm good. point <laughs> <laughs> um you, you had, might be surprised you had said that you you preferred to be in a you thought it was almost preferable to be in a sort of position of agnosticism personally yeah yeah and i don't want to challenge your no, personal bring it on.
0: on i i just think it's a wisdom. I, I just guess. want to
1: point out a different way of yep. of approaching that question yep. of knowledge and humility. Luther, one of the things that struck me about Luther when I was reading his stuff as an undergrad and I read this little book by a German named uh, Walter von Luvenich mm-hmm. and it's on Luther's theology of the cross and Luvenich looks at how Luther thought about humility and this little thing called the centeresis uh, in medieval theology which is it basically meant the flickering of the good that's still left in you after mm. the fall, okay? And Luther's basic approach to that was, well, it has to be there because we're created good in God's image. But anytime you try to claim it or identify it in yourself, it's a form of pride and therefore isn't the thing you think it is. Mm. And Luther was basically trying to say in another roundabout way something that a lot of medieval monks thought about, which was the way in which you can kind of be proud about being humble, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And the sort of paradox of being, you know, the sort of humble brag. The humble you, brag, yeah, That's yeah. right, that's right. And... And so for Luther, humility, he didn't think of it uh, in terms of virtue of character to be cultivated. He thought of it as a state of suffering the effects of, of God's work in your life, uh, which is something that you, it's sort of like when I was being hemmed in in the academic track, um, I really didn't have a choice about that, strictly speaking. It's like when Christ says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Yep. Um, and yet I discover freedom and capability for action by being claimed by by Christ in that, in that relationship. And... I think that also applies to knowledge, especially in theology. Because mm-hmm. for Luther, and I think this is true for the Cappadocian Church Fathers to some extent, Gregory of Nazianzus at least, um, we—it's like a, the Gregory gets a statement from Origen, and Luther will say, say speak similarly: the incomprehensible became comprehended in Jesus Christ. Yep. And that's not about our arrogance to claim some knowledge about God that we can't achieve. It's about God's coming down to us in self-gift and self-revelation. And so for Luther, it is a truer statement of humility to receive the word of God for what it is than to stand back at a skeptical distance, which is really hiding a desire for rational self-determination. And Recur and Bonhoeffer speak to that very powerfully, too. And it's something that I find very... Very seldom do I get a receptive audience to that claim, but I like to bring it to people's attention all the same.
0: <laughs> well, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. the incomprehensible made comprehensible is, I mean, so is so Tillich said, well, uh, Christ is the abstract made concrete. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much the same thing, right? It's, it's, or the Logos made flesh, as John put it, right? It's It's this idea that seems like ineffable. Mm-hmm. Made super explicit, super concrete. And this is the power of this is the image of the invisible God, right? This is the Christian claim that we have access to what is otherwise at least hard to articulate. At the at the very least Sure, sure. I, I <laughs> don't I don't deny that.
1: I just want to point out that that it's not intrinsically a stance of arrogance to say I know the God who created me if that's coming from the humility of receiving this gift of Christ. Ah, uh, got see it. see what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I think often theology is framed as as our capacity to come up with analogous statements between the creation and God, and and Karl Barth was so good at hacking that kind of thing to pieces, and, and Bonhoeffer really followed that too. Um, but I think if you have that proper humility of just receiving the gift of the revelation, then you're also careful to not over-determine it. In the sense that you're yeah. still willing to be open to and interact with, it. and this is part of why one of my favorite authors on on Christian theology of religions is Jacques Dupuis, who was a mm-hmm. Belgian Jesuit uh, who's, who who um, tried to. Art- he's a Catholic theologian. He actually thought didn't like Lutherans very much, and I think he's kind of prejudiced in a number of ways there. But uh, he just very powerfully articulates how you can really receive even the the Orthodox teaching about who Christ is and still be open to interacting with truth in, in other religions and and I think that's just uh, something that that en- anyone really could benefit from given how much we interact with other religions but it's sometimes challenging to find a way to yeah. you know introduce that stuff to people so
0: yeah and I I appreciate you saying that because I don't think I mean in the the idea of being agnostic I don't think that I mean, Avoiding conviction, or even something like, I guess it'd be the distinction between like epistemological and ontological. Like, like I know and have a relationship with God mm-hmm. is very different than saying I know that God exists, mm-hmm. right? Like, well, it's funny. I remember uh, whatever that's tangential. Like, I just wanted to run off on Tillich saying like God <laughs> exists or doesn't <laughs> exist, rather yeah, than yeah, God yeah. is that which. De- is beneath existence itself or determines yeah. existence Pannenberg itself. Pannenberg
1: had a, you know the German theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg, I don't know if you know him, he, he actually had a response to Tillich on that that I thought was quite quite. Oh, right. let me hear. Well, it's just basically the the Cappadocian fathers who, who sort of gave the language for what we now know as Orthodox Trinitarianism was that God is three hypostases, mm-hmm. and one common usia. That is to say, three beings that somehow share the self-same divinity, mm-hmm. stemming from the father who's the originary source. And that's, Monarchia in the sense not of supremacy or subordination, but the sense of single principle, Mm -hmm. and that means a God is both the ground of being and a being, namely Mm -hmm. three beings, and and it's I think relevant because Tillich's really been pressed on a number of issues here theologically. Not to get too like caught up in the Tillich critique, but I really don't think Tillich has a a logos Christology, Uh, and and if you read the second volume of Systematic Theology, he uh, he kind of will push back on that and, and say, well, you know, it's really just um, uh, kind of a reification, you know, I'm making a thing out of something that wasn't there. Um, and I'm not meaning to get sort of caught up in these debates around orthodoxy, but I just, I'm always in the business of trying to say, you know, when, because people are quick to criticize what they perceive to be orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm always like, well, first of all, there's way more to that than you think there is. Sure. And secondly, it's not so in conflict with a lot of the things you think it's in conflict with. Like, the world is a big, wide place. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's a jungle out there. And, like, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the more the better. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, people, I think, get tired of hearing me say this, but I love this, this statement from hamlet and shakespeare you know there are more things in heaven and on earth Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy hmm. and i just think that's so true you know it, it it's possible to reconcile so much more than we think at any given time
0: so and maybe even all things yeah and maybe even all things yeah. um i don't know how long you have yeah. and i don't want to go well, over I'm just afraid over that too that your far listeners over are gone at well, this point <laughs> well well, we'll see, but I do want to ask you a couple questions, um, that sure. I've been trying to ask of everybody. Um, so, well, one of those is, um, how would you define success?
1: Oh, why do you ask that question? <laughs>
0: well, cause I've tried to ask everybody. <laughs>
1: okay. Um, I, I hope you don't consider this a cop out, but I really don't think about success. Okay. I, in fact, I think I disbelieve in it. Um, I think the question that matters is, what is God's call on my life? Mm -hmm. What am I meant to do? Mm -hmm. Because um, when it's about success, then it's like I'm always trying to be more than what I am. Mm -hmm. But if it's about being what I'm created to be, then I can actually have healthy self-image. You see what I'm saying? And for me, the term success is tied up in unhealthy forms of ambitious striving, Uh, straberi, as Bonhoeffer puts it in his uh, writings from, from prison. Uh, that that is really against our our creaturehood and the joy of discovering ourselves to be the creature that God made us to be and being happy with that. Uh, that's a lesson that really I learned in the course of my academic study that helped me to recognize that I had a call to pastoral ministry, that my ambition, as it were, was sort of clouding that clarity and making me unhappy even, miserable. Mm-hmm. Like, well, how am I going to get into the right school and write the right manuscript to get into the right place? And yep. then, you know what I'm saying? And it's just this... Basically, that never ends. Yep. You just are going to go down. Constant striving. That's that's right. You're going to go down that route of constant striving. You will never achieve the goal because there's always going to be something else to go after it because you'll never be satisfied with what you are. And that's the good news of the gospel is that it allows us to rediscover ourselves as creatures and to be happy with that and to say, hey, I'm Gabriel Morgan, and it's good because God made it. Mm -hmm. Just as with you, John Dangler, Mm -hmm. and everyone else who's listening, right? Yeah.
0: That's a good answer. It reminds me of Mother Teresa um, when she was, you know, someone pressed her and said, Man, you've been in Calcutta all these years, it's still Calcutta. Yeah. Like, how have you been? What's the point? How have you been a success? And to which I hear that she responded, You know, God didn't call me to be successful, but to be faithful. Yeah. Like, I wasn't here to change anything, but to give myself to this vocation fully. Now, in what you just laid out, though, um, you said, Cause I, you said, uh, rather than being more than I am striving to be more than I am, um, but being what I was created to be Mm -hmm. my own kind of response to that, I guess, um, what comes to mind, I guess, is I want to be what I was created to be. And I would almost define success personally as getting out of me, Mm -hmm. everything that I was created to be right? Like fulfilling my capacity. Right. Um, and so that being said, I think that I should be more than I am for the same reason. Like what I am today is better than what I was last week, I think. And every day I'm trying to be better than yesterday is me. And I think that I'm building a capacity over time. Mm -hmm. And so there is a moving target a, a bit, um i don't just to muse on on the statement you made right there's like i'm not it's weird it's like this contentment mixed with and it's not we're not there yet it is it, you know the kingdom is here and it's coming yeah it's that right it's coming into fruition
1: right and there is i somehow like um, the Lutheran tradition got waylaid on this bizarre critique of virtue ethics, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, yes, we we need to cultivate virtue, and in that sense, it's an ongoing yep. struggle of formation. But um, that is—I would I would prefer to frame it rather than in the language of success. And, yep, and I see could. that the term doesn't have the same meaning or connotation for you as it does. for Fair me. enough, that's fair fine. enough. No, that's fine. But for me, I would prefer to frame it in terms of discovering who I am. Which yeah. I don't really know the mystery of that yet fully. Yep, yep. yep. Uh That's and good. I and I won't until I come to my end in the cross of Christ. Uh, and only from the perspective of that end can one look back on who I really am. Yeah. And until then it's a mystery. And and a mystery even to me. Yep. You know. Um and and I just and and at some level, like we're, we're always you and I dancing around, you're lifting up work and I'm lifting up grace. <laughs> yeah. And we need both, you know. Yeah. Um, but but also to recognize the, the difference in calling there and the diversity of gifts, you know, um, because I think that the only way we're, we're going to become what we're meant to be is... To receive that that gift of grace, and in this sense, I really like the way Tillich puts it: you, you are accepted despite the fact that you're unacceptable. Yeah. Can you accept that? Yeah. No. I, <laughs> we're on the exact same page yeah. here, and this yeah. may
0: actually be a great landing place for this because yeah. I, you know, it's interesting to think of the dichotomy. Yeah, it's like you're unacceptable, but you are accepted. And actually, years and years ago, this um, very pastoral figure. Um, sat me down and he said, uh, listen, Jesus ministry in all of the gospels begins with this call of identity that takes place over the baptism. So he's baptized and there's this kind of voice of heaven that says, you are my son whom I love and in you, I am pleased. Yeah. And then his ministry and his work grows out of this identity. That there is somehow an acceptance, like I am pleased with you. Yeah. And 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 the grace of that for me to receive yeah. that message right. is what gives me the drive and power and motivation to yeah. now spend myself That's right. on behalf of the work yeah. to be done ahead of us. Right. And then, therefore, it is something more akin to play or fulfilling rather than struggle and striving out of deficit, but out of abundance of love and grace and mercy. Therefore, we can strain and struggle and strive Mm -hmm. towards something meaningful um, in a different spirit. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The hard work and blood, sweat and tears, but gladly spent, gladly shed. Dude, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you want to say to everybody in terms of like, you know, here, come meet us at Pub Theology, show up at this, look me up here, anything you want to announce for those that are listening?
1: Um, I mean, I, yeah, I guess I'll reiterate our Pub Theology every fourth Friday evening. Um, nine times out of 10, we're at Southern Brewing, uh, come, come join and support the well on one of our, you know, with one of our work groups, whether it's with myself or, or, uh, you know, with one of John's groups or some, somebody else, um. It's a great ministry uh, to work hand-in-hand with, with those who, who are in need, and, um, uh, you know, our, our Sunday services at, at uh, Faith and St. Paul are 9 a.m. Uh, in the morning, Sunday mornings at Faith and 11 a.m. at St. Paul, and, you know, we we have a fairly traditional worship style, but progressive values, and, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I have a feeling that some people out there are looking for a church like that, so... Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure, man. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. And appreciate your work, man.
1: Yeah, I loved it. Thanks.
0: Hey, real quick, before you go, I want to invite you to join the conversation. One of the first comments that was left on one of the first episodes was somebody saying that they wanted to join in the conversation the entire time. And I've heard that from a few of you, and I really want to invite you to do that. So if you go to workethicpodcast.com, there is a link to join the conversation where you can click that link and chime in, uh, maybe answer what success is to you, what's your earliest memory of work, your own experience of, of what triggers flow state or your own understanding of grit but i want to invite you to join the conversation i would also like to invite you to help grow this conversation and this podcast and show so if you would please share please subscribe please leave feedback on the show uh rate it uh, comment on socials, and then if you would, please, please, please consider supporting uh, the cost, the expense that this show is becoming, and also uh, kind of my own work uh, with the podcast and with the well and well built bikes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com/slash/theWorkEthic, or there's also a link at workethicpodcast.com. Thank you so much for considering it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing, and thank you for being a part of this conversation and this project.